In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has proposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." Have you ever noticed that fighting seems to be pretty natural to us as humans? Uh, I don't think that you have to spend any time in any relationship very long to recognize that we're pretty good at it. Uh, in fact, one time I was talking to a friend of mine who was telling me of an experience where he and his new bride, who had yet to have a fight, showed up to the supermarket. And they were there, and as they were looking around, they came to the bread aisle. And little did they know that the bread aisle would become basically a war zone for their first fight. Uh, what had happened was, uh, they said, well, we need to choose some bread, and by that, what he meant was, which kind of wheat bread are we going to get? And she said, well, I like this kind of white bread. And she looked at him, and he looked at her, and he got this look of indignation. And he says, white bread? We and our family will not eat white bread. White bread is what white trash eats. Now, at this point, I was beginning to get a little offended because I liked white bread but I wasn't going to start a fight about his first fight. And so he went on and said his wife got hurt and began to cry and says, we've already always eaten white bread. It tastes better. And they began to fight and it erupted and they went home. They got angry, but eventually they were able to repent. And uh, fortunately, they're still married today. I'll let you know. So, uh, but what we find is, is in that illustration, I think a picture of the way that our hearts just tend to fight over all kinds of stuff that really doesn't make sense. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever found yourself in a fight where you you felt you were possessed by someone else. Like you got in, it seemed to make sense at the beginning, but you got in the middle of it and you're like, whoa, this is like taking a bad turn. I don't know how to get out. And I feel like there's no way to justify how stupid I look right now. Ever been there? Well, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah this morning and we're going to find that you're not the only one. Uh, And we might find this morning as we look in our text that this area where we tend to fight with one another is actually something that does have a spiritual dimension that we need to be aware of. We need the gospel because we are prone to fight not just with our enemies, but even those whom we love most. 
Now, as we look into our, our series, looking at Jesus uh, in Isaiah, uh, we are looking at a story where God has been promising through Isaiah to Judah a future spirit-anointed king who would come and bring peace to the chaos that was their lives. Now, we're looking at the, the fifth of ten oracles that began in Isaiah 13. And, and, and these five oracles are interesting because as you look at them, they actually are coupled with the second five that come. Uh, all ten actually go together, and they combine to give you this image, this image of Israel surrounded by the nations. So the first oracle, of course, is about Babylon, who is in the north. Uh, the next is about uh, will come to us, and it's about Philistia, uh, who is in the west. And then you'll find that he starts speaking about the Medes, who are in the east, and then finally he will get to Egypt, who is in the south. And in the center of all that is, of course, Israel, the people of God, surrounded by the nations. And all of this is in the context of war and fighting. And here what we find is, is that as Israel is at the center of all of this, that, that, that it really seems from one perspective that this is a people who are vulnerable to the danger of their enemy nations around them. But then from another per- perspective, it looks a little bit like Israel is just like the nations in their pride and their self-sufficiency. But here Isaiah gives us in this oracle a, another perspective, a future perspective, a perspective that says, yes, it might look like Israel in this current state of affairs is in a bad spot and in danger, but in a, there's a future day that's coming. And on that day, it is centrally and strategically located at a place from which God's king will spread out God's kingdom for the glory of God and God alone. And so a future day is coming that they are looking forward to. Now you'll remember that here as we're going to be looking at Egypt in this fifth oracle, that in the past God has rescued Israel out of slavery to Egypt. Like a divine warrior, he came and he rescued them from slavery. But in the days of Isaiah that we're reading about here, the great powers of Egypt and Assyria were constantly waging war with one another. And in Isaiah 31.1, we find that God's major beef with Israel in these days is that Judah and Israel, they were constantly looking to Egypt. And Israel had this tendency to trust Egypt's horses and their chariots and their mighty men and warriors instead of looking to the Holy One of Israel. See, God wanted the affections of His people. He wanted the trust and confidence of His people. But they were placing their confidence in Egypt and God would have none of it. Isaiah 18.7 ends with the nations bringing tribute to Mount Zion where God's king would reign. But that really leaves us with a question that Isaiah 19 is going to have to answer for us. If, if there's a future day that's coming, when God will embarrass Egypt's chariots by dropping out of the sky in a cloud chariot, then what does this mean about the nature of the relationship of Egypt to God on that day? See, God is going to drop out of the sky in this cloud chariot, and He is going to cause fear and trembling over the nation. They are going to come and bring tribute, but what is that relationship going to look like? See, God strikes Egypt for their contagious false religion, and He causes them to be divided against each other. They fight each other and stumble around like mean drunks, right? Like It says that they are literally drunk in their stupidity and fighting with one another. But you'll notice that Isaiah gives us five in that day statements in our text this morning in Isaiah 19, verses 16 to 25. 
He, said, he gives five in that day statements. You'll notice in verse 16, 18, 19, 23, and 24, that one click at a time with each statement, he is progressively revealing the dramatic change that's coming for Egypt, who seems to represent the, the hopeless Gentile world destined to get worse and worse. And yet here, God intervenes and does something new. And here's what we're going to see if you're taking notes. It's this, that King Jesus has come to make enemies family. King Jesus has come to make enemies family. Now we see this first in verses 16 to 17, where Egypt fears God. Egypt fears God. Now you'll remember that I I just said that Isaiah 19 in verse 1, it begins with God smiting Egypt, which meant that Egypt would be fighting Egypt. That's what God smiting Egypt looks like. They begin to fight each other. False gods led to fistfights. And that's still true. If you were worshiping false gods, if you were putting your confidence, confidence that ought to be laid only in God and other places, then it will ultimately lead to fistfights with others. And we find that here. But take the note of the change that breaks out beginning in verses 16 to 17. Here's what it says, beginning in Isaiah. Look there with me in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 16 to 17. Isaiah 19, 16 to 17. Here's what he says. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts that he shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Now, as you look at this, I'm pretty sure that as he speaks about the nature of what's going to happen to the men of Egypt, that biblical manhood at least includes not screaming like a girl. Now, I'm just assuming that. And I think Isaiah would agree with me. Now, I know that this is important because I have three little boys who I've had to teach not to scream like little girls. said, look, you got to drop an octave if you're going to scream so that it induces fear, not laughter, Right? You want to sound like a man when you yell, and you never want to let people know that you are fearful. Now, I want to be really clear here. Though here he says that these women like terrified men are something that are to be embarrassed of, I know some strong, brave women, and I believe that we have some strong, brave women here at Trinity Bible Church. My wife is one of them. And I'm grateful for women who are brave and strong in the Lord. But this is not the image that we are given here. See, here, none of the mighty men of Egypt arise to fight Judah like men. They are weak, fearful, and defenseless. And what a reversal. God has reversed the roles of Egypt and Judah. Now, you may remember how the pompous king of Assyria came to Judah shaking his fist, terrifying Zion in Isaiah 10. But on this day, Israel's covenant God, the Lord of hosts, shows up and he himself shakes his fist at Egypt and melts their hearts. See, Egypt carries a lot of meaning in the Bible. And and here we find that he carries both a past and a present significance. So in the past, God, you'll remember, rescued Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And he gave them a new identity. He said, I'm going to be your God and you will be my people. And that's the way that he claimed Israel as his people. But God continues to remind Israel over the rest of the Old Testament 
about this event. But they continue to look back to Egypt for help that only God can provide, even 700 years later as Isaiah prophesies. So don't miss this. God judges judges Egypt here, not for threatening Israel with physical harm, but for tempting them spiritually to trust in their might rather than God's. So what sobers up sinners who trust in their chariots while trying to fight other nations, while fighting themselves? Well, it's the Lord of hosts showing up on a chariot of clouds and declaring His purposes to Egypt, which He has purposed against them. See, it is the fear of the Lord that melts Egypt's pride and self-sufficiency. When they see God as God, it changes the way that they view themselves and everything else. Now, I think we can learn a couple things here. The first, uh, we, we can see clearly that we need to be careful about aiding and abetting sin. We need to be careful about aiding and abetting sin. See, Egypt's great sin in Isaiah is enticing God's people to trust in themselves or them rather than God. I was doing a membership interview uh, just the other day where uh, I was encouraged. I was encouraged because we got into the membership interview and we were talking about things they appreciated about the church. And one of the things they said was, you know, I'm just really encouraged because when I look at like you and Pastor Mark and the other elders, I just, I know that y'all aren't like super Christians. And I was like, well, you don't think that we're super Christians. Well, thank you, I think. I mean, that's kind of what we're striving for here, being clearly not super Christians. That's the leadership here at Trinity Bible Church. But there was another part of me, another part of me inside that was sitting there and and sort of reveling in the reality that we've done something right. And here's the thing that we've done right. We need to model what it looks like to be a faithful Christian as leaders. We need to take that seriously, and we do. But we also need to be really clear that ultimately, we are not the great hope of Trinity Bible Church. We are not the great hope of Christianity or Phoenix or the nations. The great hope of the nations is Jesus Christ as King. And the more that we make it clear that we all need King Jesus equally, and there's a real sense as though we are shepherds, we still are shepherds who at the end of the day need to come up to the mountain where the cross is, and we need to sort of step back and become sheep with the other sheep and recognize that none of us, none of us is less needy of Christ and all that He is. That's the reality of what it means to be the people of God. We need to understand that we need Christ. We need to understand that people need ultimately not to be built in to trust in us as their salvation, or or in us as though we've got like secret answers that aren't clear in God's Word, but that we need to point people towards Christ and His Word for their, their ground of their only hope. You know, I need to ask you as husbands this morning, As you look to lead your homes, are you leading your wives to put confidence in Christ? Or are you in some subtle ways causing them to put their confidence in other things? Maybe your supreme, invaluable, all-wise leadership as opposed to their need for Jesus. Their their confidence may be in a a really clever budget with spreadsheets that like do 3D stuff rather than in Christ. Christ. Are we putting, are we putting and placing the confidence of others in Christ or ourselves? What about in your, your homes, moms and dads? Are you training your children to trust Christ or to trust you? Now, I'm not saying that those things need to be like separable, but do they understand that mommy and daddy lead because Christ has told them to and they lead as Christ tells them to? And that ultimately at the end of the day, mommy and daddy are under Jesus. 
Our kids need to know that. They need to know that Christ is king in the homes. You know, maybe you need to, this morning, think about your relationships and ways that you may subtly be drawing confidence in, hope in yourself that ultimately is only for God. So let's make sure that we're not tempting others to put their confidences in other things than Christ. Because there's a second thing we see in this first point, and that's this, that God sends division to those who place confidence somewhere else than Christ. Did you see that? God actually sends division to those who are not looking to God Himself as God. Wars and fights reported from the newsroom. Those things scare a lot of us, right? We watch the news, we get terrified. But how much more should it terrify us what's happening with our friends and our families in our living rooms? The fact that we, we can't even love well those who should be easiest to love. The, those who are for us. And yet we find ourselves even fighting in those places. You know, you know there's something broken when you fight with the people that you love most. Your mom and your dad. Your husband, your wife, your sons and your daughters. Your friends and maybe even the barista at Starbucks you have no good reason to be angry at. And could it be that the, the fight that you can't fix this morning is because one or both of you have put your confidence in money or people or cars or video games or anything else for what only God can provide? Maybe the reality is that the broken relationship isn't ultimately because that other person can't just get over uh, this or that, but ultimately that they need to do business with God. Or maybe it's that you need to do business with God. You have sin that you need to repent of. Now, there's a way that you have been trusting something uh, as God rather than God himself. See, love for others, catch this, it begins with a humble recognition of the fear of the Lord. Grace teaches our hearts to fear before grace relieves those fears. Now, here's what's surprising. The fear of the Lord changes everything for Egypt. When they experience the terror of the Lord, notice what happens in verse 18. Egypt promises allegiance to God with a new language. Their disposition towards God changes. And we see a couple of unexpected changes here in verse 18. Look look at what God says there in verse 18. He says, In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those will be called the city of destruction. The first thing we see is that the language of a people is significant. We know that. It's one of the, the clearest indicators of ethnicity. It's one of the clearest uh, reasons that people tend to have different services. It's because they need to have the same language and so they can understand one another. But here, I guess they're going to need to start teaching Egyptian as a second language classes, right? Because all of a sudden, what we find is, is that Egyptians have adopted a new language. That's what it means when it says that they start to speak this language of Canaan. This is the language of the Jews, the language of the people of God. They are making a significant change to the nature of who they are, how they see themselves, and how they are inviting others to view them. Everything has changed based on this new status with God. But I think there's something even more at play here. You'll remember that the way that the different languages entered the world according to Genesis 11 is that at at Babel, uh, the people were growing proud and trying to build a tower up to God. And in that moment, God judged them with division by giving them different languages, right? That was God's judgment. It was a curse. But here, don't we see a a reverse of the curse when God says, those who have different tongues will now speak with one united tongue? 
so that they can worship together and swear and confess allegiance to the Lord in the same language? See, when Egypt adopts Judah's language, it is the curse reverse. So God will not only give Isaiah clean lips, catch this, he's going to give Egyptians clean lips. And second, they swear allegiance to the covenant God of Israel. Egypt finds peace. Peace with that divine warrior who had struck them in the past to redeem Israel. Now, I don't know what Isaiah meant by one of these will be called the city of destruction, speaking of one of these cities. But I think that the main point, the startling point here is that most of Egypt will confess that God's king is their king. And they will become part of the kingdom of God. I mean, what a change. Don't miss this. Egypt's change of status with God would begin with a public, outward confession that the Holy One of Israel who rides on clouds is God. And that God's king and his kingdom are sovereign over them. See, that day is, I believe, a day that's already here in part. Jesus is king. He is king. He is going to be seen as more fully king on that last day when he returns, but he is already all of the king for us. See, Jesus is king both of the hidden places and the open spaces. I think that's what we see here. It's not just that there is some kind of hidden anonymous religion in the hearts of Egyptians. It is a public, obvious declaration of where they stand. They have made a change in their status The relationship has publicly been changed on Facebook to sons and children of God in a relationship. Everything is different than what it used to be. This is exactly what God has done for the people of God. See, if Jesus is your king privately, I believe that we will be like the Egyptians in the sense that he is our king publicly. We will declare that Jesus is our king. We won't hide that. You know, I think this is important for Christians today. I was reading an article, maybe you've heard me reference this study before, but Duke recently did a study of megachurches, and I don't think megachurches are bad, but there is a bad motive behind some, many who go to megachurches. They found that there are a lot of folks who go because they like to be anonymous in their relationship with God and the accountability that's held to them. Brothers and sisters, that is not the picture of Christianity that we get in the Bible, The picture that we get is that when Jesus is king of your prayer room and your prayer closet, he is also king of your public relationships with others. That there is an actual uh, openness about the way that we proclaim the greatness of who Jesus is. Don't miss this. God has never called people to an anonymous faith. I know some Christians believe they can follow God without speaking of their allegiance to Christ. But the first step of faith is confessing Jesus Christ is Lord of your whole life. See, the tongue tongue here that's spoken of being changed to one tongue is considered to be the fountain of the soul. It's a symbol of the whole being of of who you are. And that's why the, the church historically, when they have thought of what it means to be a Christian, they've always said that it's important that someone confess openly that Jesus Christ is Lord and be baptized publicly. And and both of those things go together, and it's after that that they're able to partake of communion as a visible picture that they are part of the people of God. Why? Because Christianity is not something that you do privately alone. It's something that is also public and open. It is a declaration of the greatness of Christ as King. And because Christianity knows nothing of anonymous Christianity, we need to know that we need to be outward with our faith. See, fake religion goes both ways. You can pretend to be something outward that you're not inwardly. 
But you can actually believe yourself to be something inwardly and be deceived, self-deceived, because you're not that outwardly. We need to see a consistency in both, inside out and outside in. But there's a third thing that we notice in verses 19 to 22. Notice that Egyptians will worship the God of Israel. Egyptians will worship the God of Israel. Now as we read, you'll see five elements of true religion that he describes in verses 19 to 22. So look again with me in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 19. And we'll read these verses. Isaiah 19, beginning in verse 19. This is what the word of the Lord says. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So notice the first in verse 19, the first reality of true worship is this, that Egypt centers its life on the altar to the Lord. They center their life on this altar to the Lord. The altar is where sacrifices were made to reconcile man to God and where God dwelt with man. And this becomes the focal point of Egypt's existence. And the pillar at the border signals that all of Egypt has recognized the sovereignty of God over Israel. Once Judah worshipped Egypt's God, but here Egypt worships the God of Judah. And not only that, Egyptians pray to the Lord in verse 20. You'll remember that Egyptians, they actually made it famous when the people of God cried out to God for help and he saved and delivered them from Egypt. But here it's the people of Egypt that are crying out in prayer to God for help and God comes and helps and saves them. In fact, we're told that he sends them a savior, a defender, and a deliverer to deliver them. I mean, you can't miss the reversal of the relationship with God here. No longer is he delivering people from them, he's delivering them. And God hears the prayer of Egypt as he delivers them from their enemies. You also notice, third, that the Egyptians know the Lord. They know the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And here, the Egyptians know God after they have feared God. They no longer merely know about God. Based on what others have said, they actually know God himself. See, this is a, a kind of relationship that's being spoken of. Now, I often uh, describe this uh, sort of like my relationship with my, my kids, right? You have different relationships. My relationship with my kids is different than my relationships with some others. I still remember whenever Benjamin was uh, about three and Johnny was about two, and after services, uh, I, they would come in from the nursery after they had not seen me, and they would come in waving their arms and smiling and giggling and saying, And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is like heaven on earth. I mean, everybody should greet me like that. Running towards me, arms wide open, smiling, hopeful. That's the way I think people should respond to me. But Benjamin and Johnny, they they responded to me in that way because they knew me and they knew me in a different way than other people knew me. And they knew that I loved them in a way that I didn't love others and that we had a special and unique kind of love. Now, there's another relationship that I have of somebody that I know, John Piper. 
Now, John Piper, I've actually met probably on 10 different, 10 different occasions. And what's notable about every time I meet, them, meet him is that for me, it's like, hey, good to see you again. And for him, it's like, hey, it's great to meet you again. Have we met before? Each time, it's like, yeah, I, we've met before? Great. It, it doesn't recall. You see, there's a difference in the way that I know John Piper and the way that I know my boys. In the same way, there's a difference in the way that God knows us and God knows the Egyptians in this text. See, before they had known about him, heard him, maybe met him randomly at some location, but never knew him in a relational kind of way. But here, the Egyptians know God and they are running to him joyfully for the salvation that he's brought near to him because he has delivered them. He is their salvation. They are trusting him. The relationship has changed. We also find, though, another difference or strategic element of worship here. Fourth, that the Egyptians serve the Lord in verse 21b. Did you notice the Egyptians actually begin to act as priests for the covenant God of Israel, offering up sacrifices and vows to God and keeping them? Unclean Gentiles offering sacrifices to the holy God of Israel. I mean, what a startling reversal. When the Egyptians who created the occasion of the Passover begin to make sacrifices to God. And finally, notice the worship is defined in the sense that God disciplines Egypt as children in verse 22. Now this is fascinating. Hebrews tells us the Lord disciplines the son he loves. And one thing we know from the Bible is that God strikes both those who believe in Him and those who don't, but there's a difference in the the purpose of both. One is an act of judgment that's meant to bring about justice and wrath and death, but the other is a kind of striking that's meant to bring about healing and life and forgiveness. And here we find that Egypt is finding themselves under the discipline of a father, not an enemy. See, God here we find, strikes his children to bring about discipline and life because he loves them. Notice that they really are evidence and a picture of the kinds of thing that we see written in Hebrews 12, 6, where we are told, for the Lord, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So this discipline in worship here is actually a picture of the fact that God really has received them as sons. I mean, do you see the rod of God? It breaks his enemies and his children, but it only builds back his sons and daughters. What a picture. You know, John Owen, speaking about the kind of discipline that God offers to uh, his children, he says, love always precedes discipline. And there is a future day coming when we will no longer need discipline, but only the love of God will remain. Can you not wait for that day? When God's love is felt in full, where the full effects of his discipline have been carried out, And we have come fully into the image of Christ. But here's a surprise. The relationship of Egypt to his enemies in verse 23. So not only has God restored his relationship with Egypt, it also begins to affect Egypt's relationships with others. Uh, Notice that God's kingdom is actually expanding beyond Egypt into the world in verse 23. There it says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Did you notice the progression here? Uh, In verse 18, there are a few small cities who 
put their faith in God. And then it spreads to the whole country of Egypt in verse 19. And then here, the whole world in verse 23 is brought into a knowledge of God. And here it's the superpowers who would have seemed always to be at war, always stirring up everyone in fights in Isaiah's day. Assyria and Egypt are experiencing the peace that God promised His Messiah would usher in. Former enemies would worship in the house of God together. The peace, the peace that He promises will be so profound that it says that they're going to open up the roads for free. No tolls anymore, right? Like you just travel as you need to, back and forth. Freedom of access where they are worshiping and living together. In other words, peace with God has resulted in peace with one another such that former enemies can serve God together. This is a profound change. This is a day, I think, that we see in part, but we obviously have not seen in full. There's a fifth thing that we see here, and that's this. Gentiles are co-heirs with Jews of the promises of God. Notice what happens in verse, verses 24 to 25. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, that might not sound startling to you, but here's what's going on. This is actually the startling reality of the gospel on display. Gentiles, that just means non-Jews, have become adopted into the family of God. Now, my people... The works of my hands and inheritance, those words used in verse 25, are all words that describe God's special covenantal relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. Those are special words that describe a committed relationship between God and His people. So you'll remember in Exodus 5.1, great example, God tells the king of Egypt, let my people go. Do you see the reversal though? Here He is speaking to Egypt. And he says, you are my people. What a change. And here God calls Egypt my people is a radical reversal of the current state of affairs. Catch this though. This radical reversal all began in verse 1 with God riding in on a chariot of clouds. That was what started this this whole string of events off. Now if you read in Daniel, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, what you'll find is is that Daniel has the same kind of vision, but he actually gives us a few more clues as to what this day is going to be like. There in Daniel 7, this is what he says. He says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. See, this dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is an otherworldly kind of kingdom. Now, here's what's fascinating. You'll notice that one like the Son of Man is appearing before the Ancient of Days. It's a picture of the Son and the Father speaking about the kingdom, and the Father is handing the Son the kingdom as the Son, one like the Son of Man, descends on clouds from heaven to bring about justice to earth and to institute a kingdom of the nations. You might be thinking, well, okay, well, when does that happen? Well, catch this, Matthew 26, 64, got the high priest all up in arms because Jesus claimed to be this guy. 
See, it's there that in Matthew 26, Jesus told the high priest that he was the son of man who rode on the backs of clouds. And catch this. What that tells us about Jesus is that Jesus is God. See, only gods ride on clouds. You've heard me before talk about the president. You know, the president rides in a limo, and the limo's called the beast. And anywhere you see the beast, you know that the president is riding because that's his car, that's his ride. Well, in the Bible, anytime you see somebody riding on clouds, only God does that. And here we find that Jesus is the God-man who is coming down, one like the Son of Man, who is bringing about this reconciliation to God and the nations. See, only Jesus, because He is fully God and fully man, can bring us peace with God. He's the only one who can forgive sins. Mere men can't forgive sins. Mere men can't bring us peace with God. Here's the problem. If we don't have peace with God, we can't have peace with one another. Only Jesus can bring us the peace that reconciles us to God and one another. And that is not a reality that ends on the day that we accept Christ. That is a reality that exists from now into eternity where the throne of God is inhabited by the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. We need Christ for peace to break out in our relationships with one another. If we don't have Jesus, who is otherworldly, the God-man, then we're not going to have peace in our homes. We're not going to have peace in our friendships. We're not going to have peace with our coworkers. We're not going to have peace at all. See, the gospel is not just a story about peace with God. It's a story about God bringing peace into our living rooms. It's a story about God bringing peace into our bedrooms. It's a story about God bringing peace into our workplaces, into the world that we inhabit, so that we don't have to fight anymore. We don't have to fight about bread anymore. We can actually see Jesus as King and love one another as God has called us to. That doesn't happen without Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 12-22, God tells us about the power of the gospel. See, God tells us that the gospel was about reconciling us to himself, but also reconciling us to others. Notice in Ephesians 2.12, he comes and he tells about the reconciliatory power of Jesus Christ, bringing diverse people together. And he says this was the point of the gospel. Ephesians 2.12, he says this, Remember, remember that you, speaking to Christians from different nations, were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There might be some who are there right now today and need to to find this King Jesus. But listen to what he goes on and says in verse 13. Something has changed. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, Jesus... Jesus is the cloud-riding king who has come to end the Egypt-like division that displays a lack of confidence in God. When we don't trust God, war breaks out. When, when you don't trust God, that is, a good, that is a good indicator that there are going to be fights amongst you. But here's another way to look at it. When there are fights amongst us, 
that's probably a good indicator that we are not trusting Christ in the way that we ought to. So right now, you might be thinking about the relationships in your lives, and you might be thinking about the fights that are all around you, and maybe you have lots of fights, and you're thinking like, man, I just got a lot of tough people to deal with. Could it be that just maybe, yeah, they have issues that they need to deal with with God, but could it be maybe this morning that there are ways that those fights are God's message to you that maybe you need to be doing some repenting before God about what's going on in your life and the way that you're viewing Him and others? Maybe the real problem that we have in our relationships is ourselves, our sin. Now this morning we're going to be taking communion, and I think there are a number of things that we need to be thinking about. First is this. This is a great time to think about your relationships. You know, you can't change the heart of others, but you can change your hearts and experience a down payment of that peace that God promises. Now think about your your fellow members here at Trinity. Think about those folks that you've covenanted together with here at the church, your relationship with them. Think about your marriage. Think about your parents, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your your co-workers. Do you think that the animus in your relationship this morning might be because you have not dealt with sin in your own life? Maybe your eyes have been wandering outside of your marriage because you're fighting with your wife, right? You're like, I'm fighting with my wife, and so I'm looking elsewhere. And you're thinking that your wife is a problem, but the reality is that you have not been trusting God in your marriage. You have forgotten that you have married your wife under a covenant with God who is over it. And so you've forgotten the eyes of God, and you don't care about the eyes of your wife anymore, and your eyes are going elsewhere. Are you unable to have healthy friendships Because you're all about what you can get out of that person. Are you self-centered in that relationship? Maybe you think that fighting with those you love proves the absence of God this morning. Maybe that's you. You're thinking, well, you know, God must be absent because like if he were here, I wouldn't have all this fighting. But have you ever thought that maybe if what's happening in Isaiah 19 is true, that God sent a spirit of division because people were putting their confidence in other places, that just maybe the, the fact that you have fights all around you this morning are not proof of the absence of God, but the presence of God's judgment that is calling you back to be healed by Him in ways that only He can heal? Maybe the reason that you are struggling so much this morning with God is that you have been struck by God, but you refuse to be healed by God because you will not repent of your sin. That's what happened with with Egypt. But catch this, Egypt did respond to the word of God and they were healed and they were brought peace. And this is a promise that comes to the people of God. What if Isaiah 19 is right and our fights are actually God's judgment inviting us to repentance and peace? And as a church, I think that we need to be a place that fights for peace beginning with our own hearts. Now, one of the things that I just take joy in here at Trinity Bible Church is you. I think you guys are amazing people. And I'm not saying that because I think like, oh, that's a pastor's job is to say things that aren't true, but that makes everybody feel really good about themselves. Like, I really love you guys. I I sense that we have a, a sense of the Spirit moving in us that is causing us to love one another in all kinds of sacrificial ways. And it brings me such joy. And here's one of the things that that causes me to want to do. It makes me want to make sure that we are dealing with broken relationships and healing them so that we can protect and grow what God is doing here. I believe that when we are faithful to deal with broken relationships, no matter how difficult they are, that God will bring about life to His people. He will work. His Spirit will thrive in environments where people are confessing their sins and repenting before Him. That's when peace begins to break out. It takes fighting to get that kind of peace. Fighting for the gospel. I think we see a good way... To do that in Philippians 2.14, 
Philippians 2 gives us this amazing vision of Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, exalted. And we are told there that every knee will bow. And catch this, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One of the most amazing visions of Christ in all of the Bible. Do you know where he goes from that for application? Do you know where he jumps to after that? You might be thinking, I don't know, like missions or like, I don't know, stuff like that. You know where he goes? He goes, he goes right here. He says, so don't grumble and complain. Like, whoa, you've just talked about like the majesty of Jesus on his throne and like a worldwide submitting to Christ and your first place to go in application is, so don't grumble and complain. And why do you think that is? I think it's because it's in the grumbling and complaining heart that we find a heart that is discontent with God and not trusting God. Our confidence has started to shift away from Jesus on his throne. And so maybe what we need to recognize is that when we're grumbling and complaining, that is not evidence that we are like super spiritual and could detect bad things better than others, but that maybe we have actually lost sight of Jesus on the throne. We have no longer in our hearts set up Christ as holy, Christ as king, Christ as sovereign. Jesus isn't riding in on those clouds anymore. We see him on a poor, like sort of feeble donkey, unable to do anything. The reality is, is that Christ is king. And if Christ is king, he'll be Christ of our mouths. When our hearts are healthy, our speech will be hopeful. But this text is also, I believe, a reason to praise God for what we see here at Trinity, an increasing diversity in our body. I love it. In fact, in a moment, we're going to have different ethnicities helping to serve our communion as a picture of what God's doing here and drawing diverse people to himself. But let me just ask you this. As we think about the future and this future day that's coming where the nations will be gathered, this day where we're already seeing in part a fulfillment of that as diverse people are being gathered in local churches around Jesus Christ as King, how are you seeking to make disciples of people different than you? When you're meeting to to read the scriptures with someone and to make disciples, because I know you want to do that and you're doing that as a Christian, as you're doing that, are you choosing people that are just like you, that are easier? Are you actually looking for other folks who are different than you? Folks who will actually show off the nature and beauty of the gospel. Because catch this, there is something about when diverse people gather around the gospel that makes the gospel light up in ways it doesn't when a bunch of people who look just alike don't light up. Now here's how I would prove that. You know, when I show up with my wife and my kids, they are all blonde hair and blue eyes. And uh, apart from me, they are beautiful, right? And people are like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a nice family. They look happy, a nice-looking, you know, white American family. Good for you. That's great. You know what shocks and startles people? It's like when you show up and you have kids and a family who are of different ethnicities, who are adopted. And you go like, well, did they, how did they get together? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, they couldn't be all together. And then you go, wow, you know what's happening here? Like the gospel, uh, there is something that is drawing them together that's different. And isn't that true of what happens in the gospel? When you see people who are diverse in ethnicity, people diverse in interest, when they gather together, and you're like, why are you guys together? It must be something different that is drawing you together than the things that normally draw people in this world together. It's not that you just speak the same language and like the same songs. It must be that you have a different kind of king. Something other, something outside of this world is drawing you together. And brothers and sisters, that's what happens when we are making disciples of folks that are different than us. It shows that we really do believe that Christ is king, and there's a coming day where we will be defined not by the color of our skins, but by what we believe in our hearts to be true about the nature of who Jesus is. That is what changes us. That is what makes us new.